And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. Please keep your Bible open in front of you. We'll probably look at one or two other places in God's word this evening where that command, do not murder, pops up again and again. And as we look at that, we'll see the way in which it unfolds for us. We'll see the way in which this commandment meant a lot, not only for God's people in the book of Exodus, as they stand on the edge of the promised land, but also for us today, those who follow Jesus, waiting for our entry into our promised land, into eternal life. In the year 1979, there was an article published in the Journal of the Royal Institute of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. And the journal is still in production today, produced quarterly, with the idea of making philosophy and philosophical matters accessible to the non-specialist reader, of which I am one. The article in question that we're looking at this evening, or that I mentioned this evening, is rather enticingly titled, What is so wrong with killing people? And it's an article that begins with these words. If killing another human is morally wrong on at least some occasions, as it clearly is, what precisely makes it wrong? It was uploaded to the website online. You can access it for a whole 21 of your pounds, if you like. But the good news for us this evening, though, is that we can hold on to that money because there is an authoritative answer to that question, not drawn from human wisdom, but given to us by the God of all life. See, in the sixth commandment, God explains with authority as our creator, what precisely makes killing another human being so wrong? And his answer is something that will reveal something of his character, his righteousness. His answer will reveal something of our hearts. His answer will point us forward to Jesus, who obeyed this law perfectly. And his answer will give us instruction for us to live every day as his people. But I do want to pause here before I go any further and say that, like we mentioned last week, this evening we will touch on some matters that I'm sure will have affected many of us in this church family as they have affected me. As we look at the Sixth Commandment, it's important to briefly touch on the value and the protection of life from before birth right up to the point of death. And that will mean that we cover some topics and perhaps even some memories that I'm certain will be sore. We as individuals, as a church family, we will carry a lot of very personal experiences, heavy experiences, either in our own lives or in the lives of those who are near and dear to us. And I want to acknowledge that we do not take these things lightly as a church family, we want to address these matters with real gospel care and real gospel compassion. To address these matters and to address the people affected in the same way that Jesus does, in the same way that Jesus would do, for he would not ever break a bruised reed. 
but instead lovingly wrap his arms around someone. And at the same time, we want to celebrate the good news of this commandment, to celebrate the God of life. And what I hope is that by the end, we'll see that he commands his people to be a people of life. To know the promise, the wonderful promise of eternal life for ourselves. And then to allow the life that he gives us to shape how we love one another. Both those who know Jesus and those who don't yet know him. And so over the next 25 minutes we'll look at this command under four headings. You'll see them appear on the screen as we go. The first thing to understand about this commandment is that it points us up to reveal the God of life. The sixth commandment points us up to reveal the God of life. So you might have spotted already from the footnote in the Bible that the sixth commandment is slightly broader than simply not to murder. It does mean not to directly take somebody's life, but it also means not to cause or to allow someone to die through negligent behavior. And disobedience to this commandment had been a blight on humanity from as early on in history as Genesis chapter 4, where one of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, kills his brother Abel. And God's disdain for murder, God's disdain for death in that form, is made apparent immediately after the fall, right at the start of the history between him and his people. Murder is a sin that stands in such sharp contrast to the beautiful world of Genesis 1 and 2, a world where God creates humanity to be in a perfect harmonious relationship with the Lord, and then also to be in a perfect harmonious relationship with one another. Murder is a sin that stands in such sharp contrast to the creation of humanity as image bearers of God. There is something special about humanity as God creates us. We're not just another animal, like some might suggest. So in verse 7 of chapter 2 of Genesis, right at the heart of the creation account, we read that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Humanity in particular was imbued not only with physical life, but spiritual life. We were made to be aware of God in a unique way amongst creation. To know him, to be known by him in a way that no other creature could claim. He designed our world to never know pain, to never know loss, to never mourn to never murder, but instead to enjoy him, to enjoy his fullness, and to enjoy his provision and his life forever. And yet tragically, as a consequence of disobedience to him, as a consequence of sin and rebellion, death, anger, murder are all introduced into the world in which we live. And these things stand as the very antithesis of who God is. They're the very antithesis of what he created. And so for God's people, as they stand on the precipice of the promised land that they're about to enter into with all of the other gods and religions of Israel's day, murder might be their way, 
death might be something that they're okay with. Perhaps the way that other nations are happy to resolve issues or solve arguments. But Israel, by contrast, was to be a light to the nations, to reflect the character, to reflect the salvation of the God who made them, to echo something of his goodness, to echo something of his life to the watching world. And so therefore, as his people in Exodus, from before Exodus and ever since, they are not to murder. They are not to cause the death of someone else, but are instead to preserve life, to speak of life to one another, to shine the life of God out to the nations as they watch, bear his image as the nations look on. And for God's people throughout the generations, that means that we have even more reason than most to mourn death, especially when a human has decided that they will end the life of another, regarding life as something that can be expended or disposed of if desired, if necessary. So in the year 1928, it became illegal, and it's still illegal now actually, to deface a banknote. And then it later became illegal to destroy a coin that you owned. It was a crime to deface and destroy something that bore the image of authority and royalty. And God says that it's an even more serious crime to deface something that bears the image, bears the likeness of the authority and the royalty of our God. He says that murder is a tragic loss, a criminal loss of something, someone made in the image of his or her creator. And so it's forbidden. It's worth mentioning here that as you read on in the Old Testament, as you read on in Exodus, you'll see laws and legislation for times of war. For the people of Israel, you'll see very precise, very carefully explained laws and legislation for which severities of sinful behavior do and do not merit the death penalty, as well as other laws and legislation surrounding self-defense. See, God knows that his people live in a flawed, fallen world where they are beset by other nations that are sharpening their swords, a world where certain sinful behavior means, demands that a life is taken as justice. And these laws are always proportional. They're needed and necessary for a time as God's people wander the earth as a nation. And they're laws and legislations which always have the purpose of limiting and outrightly prohibiting unlawful death. The headline is that there is absolutely no right that any human being has to decide how many days someone else has on the earth. Such things belong to the Lord of life and to him alone. That's the first thing for us to see this evening. The second function of the command is to search and to expose the murder in our hearts. To search and to expose the murder in our hearts. We might listen to the sixth commandment this evening not to murder, and to think that we finally, in our series, come to a commandment where we think we're doing okay. It's the one commandment where we can confidently say that we've never broken it. But then in those verses that we read earlier on in Matthew, 
Jesus points out that murder isn't something we just do with our hands, but something we do with our hearts. You might like to turn to Matthew chapter 5. As I say, we read it out earlier on, but it might be useful to have it open in front of you. It's on page 810, if you'd like to look it back up again. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 21 reads this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, for Jesus, the premeditation, everything that precedes murder, the hatred, the insults, is in its essence just as sinfully out of step with the God of life as the actual act of murder is itself, even if our intentions aren't to physically harm someone. See, for Jesus, there's no free pass to think murderous and hateful thoughts, even if you don't actually commit murderous and hateful acts. So 2,000 years ago, there was a tendency among the religious authorities to relax the commandments like we read earlier on. There was a tendency amongst the religious elite to think this way, to believe that as long as someone hadn't broken the commandment at face value, regardless of the condition of their heart, they were still in step with God's laws, his character. The hatred behind what we thought about someone The hatred behind what we said about someone, well, that doesn't really matter, they thought. As long as we don't physically murder them, that's seen as a perfectly legitimate way to keep this commandment. But Jesus says that line of thinking completely ignores God's intentions. It completely ignores God's heart behind the commandments that he gives. And Jesus will not let us think that way. Jesus won't let us suck God's character and God's purpose out of the commandment just to leave the commandment as an empty husk to be obeyed our way. Instead, Jesus unpacks these laws in a way that helps us to see that it's not just the physical act of murder that incurs God's judgment and wrath, but the path leading up to it. And as I listen to Jesus unfold the full extent of the sixth commandment, I'm not so sure anymore that I look that innocent. There may not be blood on my hands, but as I look at my heart, I can feel the tug. I can feel the tendency to hate and to insult my brother. There may not be murder on my criminal record, but in all honesty, murder's fingerprints are all over my thoughts and my words. And Jesus knows that these things could rip his church apart. He knows that these sorts of thoughts, these sorts of words, these sorts of actions, they have completely laid waste to legitimate gospel work and witness throughout the ages. They stand in defiance against the work that God is doing to unite a people together, to rescue them for eternity. We instead go on to read in verses 23 to 26 that Jesus' priority for his people is not rage, but reconciliation. His priority for one another is to come to terms 
with one another, to use the language of Matthew, to lovingly speak words of life, to grow relationships of life between those who obey the God of life. And in fact, next week, I think it will be in our morning series in 1 John, we'll read these words. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. See, Jesus says hatred of one another, all of the insults, all of the anger that come with that, that is of the world. That is behavior that is of the world, and that is not behavior that is of his kingdom. There is zero tolerance for murder in the hearts of his people. And my confession this evening is that I cannot count myself as guiltless. And so as we understand Jesus' teaching on the sixth commandment here, to a greater or lesser extent from person to person, I'm sure, we understand that everyone has, in some way, fallen short of obedience to this commandment. Perhaps even today. And according to Jesus' words, we are liable. Liable to judgment. Liable to the fire of hell. And so what we desperately need to swallow up the murder in our own hearts is the forgiveness, the mercy, and the eternal life of the God who gives us these things generously. That's our third heading this evening. This command points forward to Christ who gives his people, who offers the world eternal life to the full. We read earlier on in our service those words from John's Gospel where Jesus speaks to the religious leaders and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. And we then go on to read in John chapter 10, verse 10, those well-known words from Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus reveals to us that God is extremely invested in all of his people, knowing the wonderful guarantee, knowing the wonderful promise of everlasting life in Jesus. As Jesus steps into our world, he shows us that God isn't just a God who created life, but a God who relentlessly continues to give life, to forgive us completely, to turn our hearts away from murdering one another, to instead sharing the life and the love that he offers. I don't think in these verses that Jesus guarantees us a high quality of life this side of eternity. He knows, as we do, that as his people we will face trials, persecution. I don't think that's what these verses in John offer us. Instead, it's something much, much better. This fullness of life that Jesus offers, according to John's gospel, is rescue from death, rescue from judgment... And in its place, life to the fullest extent that we could ever imagine. Beyond that, life which never ends, life which never expires in a renewed world where murderous thoughts, murderous actions are a vague, distant memory. 
See, as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus' life is not one of hatred. Jesus' life is not one of insulting. It's not one of murder towards others. But Jesus' life is one for he himself is hated. He himself is insulted. He himself is murdered. Murdered on a cross. See, Jesus suffers the worst ways in which this command has ever, ever been broken. All the while, perfectly obeying the commandment himself. He willingly embraces his own murder, laying down his life so that others may know eternity. And then he encourages us to take up our crosses and to follow him, to lay down our lives in whatever way is appropriate so that others around about us might hear of the God of life, may also themselves know the eternal life that Jesus offers. That seriously grows my appreciation for Jesus' own obedience to God's law. My gratitude for Jesus deepens as I think about his own willingness to endure murder for my sake and for your sake, as well as the glory that awaits him. See, as Jesus perfectly fulfills this commandment during his life, never thinking a thought of hate, never insulting, never thinking a murderous thought, as he does that, he pays the price once for all for the times that we have fallen short and disobeyed the commandment in our hearts, in our heads, and with our hands. And the wonderful good news is that as his people, we know that one day will begin the eternal life that we have already received. A life which forces out the murderous thoughts and replaces them with a desire to also lay down our lives so that others might come to know him. And so lastly, as I close, we, as his people, live everyday lives of life and love rather than murder and hate. As we imitate Jesus, as we imitate his perfect obedience, his perfect fulfillment of the command not to murder, he says that we too are to be people of peace rather than anger, people of love and life rather than murderous thoughts and actions. So the last place I want us to turn this evening is Romans chapter 13. It's on the screen there. Romans chapter 13. If you've got a Bible open in front of you, I hope you still do. It's on page 948. I'm just going to read three verses from Romans chapter 13. Verses 8, 9, and 10. They say this. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore Love is the fulfilling of the law. See, in Jesus' kingdom as his people, not only do we obey God's command not to murder, but we obey God's command by owing nothing to one another except 
to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is Paul's summary of these commands that we're looking at over the next few weeks. What a completely radical way to live. Imagine the effects that that would have on our relationships around about us if we were to live this way. Imagine the opportunities we'd have to show Christ's forgiveness, to speak of his love to one another, to those who don't yet know him. If we showed forgiveness instead of fury. Imagine if instead of anger and hatred and insults, we bless those who persecute us. We give to our enemies. We're free from the desire for revenge. Think about those around about us in the library, the office, the neighborhood who we would interact with this way. I think they would be in for quite a shock. We're deeply invested in the eternal life of everyone around about us, believers or otherwise, as we love them, as we love our neighbors, as we love ourselves. See, God's people are pro eternal life which I think affects not just our views on everything we've seen so far tonight not just on abortion not just suicide not just euthanasia but so so much more beyond that see the sixth commandment means that I recognize every single person that I see in St Andrews and beyond as an image bearer of the God of life From the unborn child to the flatmate battling thoughts of self-harm through to the elderly person struggling in the hospital bed. Everything we've seen this evening shapes our stance, which is pro-eternal life. Every single day that every single image bearer is alive is a day where they in some way bring glory to God, fallen and floundering as they are. See, abortion, suicide, euthanasia, these are ways in which this commandment is disobeyed. But as we've already seen this evening, Jesus' love, his compassion, his forgiveness covers every single angle of disobedience to this commandment. And it's a love, it's a compassion, it's a forgiveness and a grace, which I desperately hope that we demonstrate to one another as a church family and to others. As I said at the start, there will be complicated conversations, I'm sure, surrounding the ethical terrain of these matters. There are scenarios where there is significantly more to discuss than what we've just mentioned. But these verses show us with clarity that every single day, as we look around about us, we recognize humanity from the unborn through to the elderly, much more than just atoms and matter but fundamentally as individuals that have had the life of God breathed into their lungs. Individuals that could and do know the full eternal life that Jesus offers them. And as an individual Christian and as a church family, we want to lay down our lives for them rather than encouraging their lives to be taken away so that they too might be brought from death to eternal life so that they too might see something of Jesus love bring him glory and tell others of him during their living days in this world on this earth earlier on we asked the question what is so wrong with killing people why would God insist upon the sixth commandment well his answers are clear and they're good news 
He is the God of life who stamps his image upon humanity and his people. He is the God who, for the sake of our salvation, searches our hearts, exposes our own sinful tendencies to feel anger and hatred towards others. He is the God who sends Jesus to offer us life, life in all its fullness, eternal life, beyond the fullest way that we could ever, ever imagine. And he is the God who calls his people to imitate his sacrificial generosity, to live lives where we lay down our lives in love for others, imitating the way that our King Jesus has done for us. Let me pause there and let me pray for us before we finish up our time together this evening. Father, we thank you that these commandments and the one that we've looked at tonight reveal who you are, reveal to us that you are the God of life. Father, we thank you for the way that you have, through these commandments, exposed the sin and the murder in our hearts. But thank you, Father, so much for showing us forgiveness and love and grace beyond our wildest imaginations in Jesus. Thank you that he has come to give us eternal life to the full. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to live that out collectively and individually as your people, your people of life and love. Help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And help us ultimately, Father, we pray to love you, to love your words and to obey them. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.